Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Science. The book under discussion today is Scott Bambinek's The Cosmic Machine, which is a wonderful way to introduce an intellectually curious person to how physics and chemistry have evolved and how they contribute to our understanding of the universe. This book focuses on four key topics, energy, entropy, atoms, and quantum mechanics, and does so while enjoyably integrating the history and personal stories of some of the primary contributors. The topics discussed in this book are some of the most profound truths we have learned about the universe, and the book more than amply repays the concentration it sometimes requires. I've been reading books like this for half a century, many by well-known and highly respected authors, and this book compares very favorably with them. Scott, welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. It's really my pleasure to be here. Thanks, you. Scott, what led you to write this book? Well, Jim, it's a good question. So we have to go back to some, like 2009, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. She had just read this popular science book and she was telling me all about it. She was so excited. And I was just really captivated by her interests. You have to understand she wasn't a big popular science reader and she wasn't a scientist herself. And so I just was really taken aback by how you know interesting she found the science, the, the story and the book in general. And I thought to myself, you know, I think I would like to do that. You know, I would like to open up science to a whole new audience other than scientists. A great concept, believe me. I mean, uh, I think that writing books like this is extremely important because science is important and people don't know enough about it. Um, the first topic in your book is energy, and you spend some time on that. What are simple machines, and how did the ancients know about them? All right, so the simple machines were really... The idea behind them was to make life easier when the ancients were doing work, right? So the six simple machines we have are the pulley, the wheel and axle, the lever, the wedge, the screw, and of course, probably best known as the inclined plane. And the idea behind them is that when someone is doing work, if they use a simple machine, it actually makes it easier. And the way it makes it easier is it lessens the force that's actually needed to do the work. But the price you pay for that is that you have to move your object, you know, whatever it is, maybe you're pushing something up an inclined plane or what have you, you're gonna have to move it over a greater distance. And so the key concept here is, even though it's easier to, to do this, that the overall work, whether you're using a simple machine or not, it's the same. In other words, work is conserved. Um, how did Galileo arrive at the idea of incorporating mathematical descriptions of phenomena? And what were a few of the phenomena he studied? All right. So that's a great question, Jim. I mean, Galileo was interested in the motion of objects. And that was that's a very distinguishing thing because physicists and people before him had really focused on not so much the motion, but the static. So in other words, what is it about the forces on something that cause it to balance? You could imagine like a teeter-totter and you have weights at both ends. You have the pivot point in the middle. And depending on where the pivot point is and the weights that you have, there'll be a certain balancing according to the forces. And Galilei wasn't interested in that so much. He wanted to know, what if I have a force that's applied to an object? How will it move? And can I actually describe this mathematically? Can I understand the mechanics or the physics of the dynamics, so to speak? Um, you know, a while back, you mentioned the concept that work was conserved. What physical quantities are conserved? Do we have any idea why, or is it just the way the universe functions? Uh, I mean, that's a great question. So the the quantities that we think most about being conserved are energy, of course, and the conservation of momentum, both linear and angular momentum. And I mean, the short answer is that these are just universal truths. You know, these are things that over all these centuries, 
we haven't seen anything that violates these laws. Um, that's, you know, it's probably one of the great mysteries that we might never, uh, uh, that we might never unearth. But of course, what we do is we assume it, we make deductions from it. And when the deductions turn out to be the way the universe is, we're pretty confident that we've got the right idea. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, one of the forms of energy is heat. How is it transformed into other forms of energy and what exactly is heat? So that's a good that's a good point. So in short, heat is a is a form of energy, as you you noted, and it took a long time to really figure that out. It was kind of the the missing link, so to speak, as far as uh, the overall story with energy. Um, heat comes about mainly whenever we try to do work. So the way you can think about this, once again, using the simple example of trying to push something up an inclined plane, maybe I'm rolling a ball up an inclined plane. Obviously, there's going to be friction between the ball and myself and the inclined plane and that, and this friction leads to heat. So in other words, the energy that I'm putting in to try to move this object, a certain amount of it will be lost because of this, this friction, which ultimately re re results in heat loss. And so heat really comes about anytime I try to do work, there's always friction that's present, and this friction results in heat loss. Um, in reading your book, um, this section of the book was on energy, and I noticed that nuclear energy is not discussed in this portion of the book, nor is electricity. And is that because there's basically a chronological structure to your book, and the idea of electricity and nuclear energy came about later, and you chose to discuss them later? Well, to be honest with you, yes, that's that's mostly what happened here. I mean, look at uh, let's let's look at nuclear energy for example. I mean, that would have come after. Um, a lot of the quantum mechanics discussion that I gave. So somewhere into the 1930s, 1940s would be kind of the starting point. And I actually recently wrote a, an article on nuclear fission for Scientific American where I touched on some of this and I spoke specifically of Lee's Metner. But there's such a rich story and rich history there and I didn't think I really could do justice to it. And like I said, it would also be an extension past a lot of the material covered in the book. And it's a, it's a similar story with electricity. I mean, there's it's very interesting and there's a lot going on, but it would have really taken us past some of the main concepts and into a whole different chronology. Um, you know, just uh, uh, you happen to mention Lise Meitner and Lise Meitner uh, was one of my favorite individuals uh, in history, simply because she was a student of Boltzmann's who's responsible, yes. who's responsible for uh one of the uh, uh, the next portion of your book, uh, at least the discussion of entropy, and I just had to bring this up because it's an absolutely lovely story. Um, Boltzmann, who cl clearly is one of you know just an absolutely beautiful person, just absolutely blew away Lise Meitner, and she describes his uh, uh, his teaching and how impressed she was with it. Yes. And Lise Meitner is another example of how we managed to uh, we managed to not give women the credit they deserve because Lise Meitner is as responsible for anyone as the discovery of nuclear fission, and she sort of gets shoved to the side as uh, Hahn and Strassmann are mentioned as yes, the primary contributors. Yeah, no, I mean, you make a good point. I mean, actually, I, I talked a bit about it in the article. It's really unfortunate, the, uh, yeah, how historically, you know, women in science, the discrimination and a lot of discrediting of their efforts. It's, uh, it's frustrating. And actually, that's that's why I wrote that article about Lise Mender, because I'm, I was just really struck by that because it was so shocking. But I was also just, it's an inspirational story. I mean, her 
ability to overcome all these things, you know, move forward in her personal life and her scientific life. It just amazed me. Yeah. Um, anyway, getting back to your book, what exactly is entropy and why is it so important? <clears throat> well, it's a good question. I mean, so, well, let's start with why is entropy important? I mean, entropy is important because it seems to serve as kind of a signpost for the natural direction of physical processes. So as a particular example, let's think about a cup of coffee. So you have your cup of coffee in the morning, you're sitting there for a while and you know that the coffee will eventually cool off. And that's not because of anything that you did or anything in particular, except that that's just the way it is. It's a, it's the natural direction of things. In other words, it's natural for the heat to flow out of the coffee into the atmosphere. And we understand that is actually a result of, of entropy. In particular, it's, it's tied to the second law, like we were talking about universal laws earlier. It's tied to the second law that says that the overall entropy of the universe tends to a maximum. And so, you know, this was one of the big questions that people were trying to answer, you know, why do certain things like the, the directional heat flow um, in your coffee and other processes, what is it that drives these types of things? And ultimately, we know that all processes ultimately results in an overall increase of the universal entropy. So this is why entropy is important because it serves as kind of this signpost. Yeah, you mentioned that entropy is involved in the second law of thermodynamics. Um, there's also a first law. And are these laws mathematically derived or there, are they experimental observations that do not appear to be contradicted? Well, I mean, it kind of goes back to what we were discussing earlier. It's it's, there really isn't a mathematical derivation. I mean, you can look historically where people have attempted this, in particular Helmholtz. We give him a lot of credit for coming up with kind of the first mathematical statement of the first law, the conservation of energy. Um, you know, but it was a proposal, right? It was a hypothesis, a, a theorem, and then we know that over all these years we haven't found any violations of the first law or the second law, and so we hold these things to be kind of universal truths is what's happening. Um, because you're a physicist, I think I want to ask you this question. Do you think of these as sort of the axioms of a system that maybe we don't completely understand, but we'll accept the axioms for the time being, make deductions, then make measurements, and if the measurements correspond to the deductions, we'll think, okay, more confirmation for the axioms, and if not, we throw out that axiom and look for another? Well, yeah, that's exactly what I think. I, you know, Science is interesting because I think we, we write down these things and we have these, like you say, hypotheses or axioms or, or even laws. But in the back of our mind, you know, I think we know that these things could be overturned at some point, you know, that we could actually find out that these are um, they're not as rigorous as we thought, that as we grow more in our knowledge about the universe we live in and we learn more things and we, you know, derive more things and we confirm them experimentally, we see that we have to kind of modify things. If you if you look at the history of science, it's, that's really what it's always been. I guess what's beautiful about the first and second law is that they've survived, you know, some hundreds of years, you know, well, more like decades, I suppose, uh, you know, uh, they've survived for that long. So they're pretty hard and fast, whereas other things often get turned over more quickly or maybe they persist longer. These laws have really, you know, been the mainstay for some time. Okay, I minored in physics when I was in college, and one of the reasons that I got into mathematics was that I wasn't such a good physics student, and I was better at mathematics. Oh, um, yeah, that's but, interesting. 
<laughs> um, my thesis advisor, incidentally, was uh, uh, was also a physics student, but he just found mathematics more interesting. But I enjoy talking to physicists. And one of the things that I always want to ask them is, is there was a quote, uh, there's a well-known quotation uh, due to Richard Feynman that if there is a universal theory of everything, that would be truly wonderful. But if it isn't, and the universe is just endless uh, succession of layers like an onion, and we keep peeling off a layer and discover a new truth, that's the way it is. And I always like to ask physicists, which way do they think it is? Oh, that's a great question. So, Not mine, Feynman's. Yeah, well, he's a smart guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Believe it. You know, I'm, I'm totally comfortable with, you know, if we're really, if we're really playing this game, so to speak, and, I'm, and when I think of game, you know, finally we're talking to these terms, so I mean it like this, but this game where maybe we are just peeling back these layers and finding more and more fundamental truths and that, you know, I would like to think there's this ultimate kind of, um, you know, sense of certainty where there's this, uh, you know, theory of everything, but I'm, I'm also comfortable with if we're just peeling back a bunch of layers. In other words, you're like Feynman. I have to say that just as a mathematician, I want there to be a universal theory of everything. Yeah. And I'm 76 years old, and I want it discovered in my lifetime. Yeah. And I want someone to write about it so I understand it. I hear you. <laughs> yeah. You know, actually, to be honest with you, I can, when I was a little bit younger, I actually wanted to have this theory of everything as well. But I guess I, I'm, I'm kind of at that point in my life or that stage, you know, and I can't really put my finger on anything that drove me in this direction. But I'm, I've just become comfortable with the discovery process, you know, the scientific discovery process. Yeah. Well, you work in the area, so your feelings are, I think, more relevant than mine. Well, I, anyway, well, getting... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> sure. Getting back to entropy, what are irreversible processes? Sure. Irreversible processes are one that occur in a given direction. So in other words, the reverse direction or the backwards direction, if you will, isn't one that's preferred. So it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, that entropy is kind of the signpost of the preferred direction. Whereas, um, you know, irreversible process, it's a one-directional type of thing. So let me give you a quick example. You can imagine a glass vase on the table, you knock it over, it falls to the floor, it breaks. That's an irreversible process. For example, you can imagine struggling and trying to put it back together. Maybe you're gluing it back together and you tell yourself, oh, it, it, it's kind of like it was before. But you, you're never going to be able to put it back into that unbroken state no matter how good you glue it. And a big reason why you can't do this goes back to what we were talking about earlier and this idea of heat, when when the vase fell off the table, it hit the ground, and that's a type of friction. And what happened is there was heat loss and dissipation. And so no matter how carefully you glue that back together, you're never going to be able to pull that heat back out of the universe and put it into that vase. Um, okay, uh, one of the things that always intrigued me was the significance that entropy has for cosmology. Perhaps you could discuss that a little. Sure, let me talk a little bit about that. So... You know, we've talked about how entropy and this uh, entropy is an increase in the, the second law talks about this increase of the universal entropy as being kind of the natural state. And in cosmology, there's a variety of ways that we think about it. And one of the ways that we talk about this is in terms of what's called the heat death. Okay, so it goes back to this idea of that when all the energy in the universe has been used up and dissipated as useless heat, that all that's going to remain is you have entropy and that the entropy of the universe will finally have hit its all-time max. And so the problem there is that this will kind of be like a cosmological endpoint, if you will. There's not going to be any energy left to actually do work with. So it comes back to this kind of fundamental idea 
that we have energy and we can do a certain amount of work with it, but we also incur a certain amount of heat loss, which is, you know, about the entropy increase. And then at some point, we're not going to have any energy left, and that's going to kind of be a done deal. As far as the idea, another related idea is this idea of arrow of time, and it goes back to irreversible processes in the favored direction. And there seems to be a relationship between the concept, our concept of time as we understand it seems to be related to entropy increase of the universe. For example, if we go back to the idea of the vase that fell on the floor and it broke, when you see it on the ground is broken, conceptually we think of somewhere in the past that vase was actually sitting on the table maybe and it was unbroken. So we have this kind of sense of time and entropy and directionality that's related to an overall kind of cosmological viewpoint. Um, you know, towards the end of the 19th century, they were developing a couple of theories in this area. Um, the kinetic theory and statistical mechanics and uh, exactly what are they and uh, how did one lead to the other? That's a good question. So the fundamental idea behind kinetic theories Kinetic theory is the properties that we measure, for example, things like temperature and pressure. We can actually understand these properties more fundamentally in terms of atoms and molecules. So that was that was the fundamental concept. So let me give you an example. A great example would be a balloon filled with helium. Inside that balloon, you have these atoms bouncing around and banging into each other. You have billions of collisions occurring every second. You can't see any of this going on, of course. However, according to kinetic theory, you can translate the existence of these motions into actual, you can write down an actual expression for pressure and temperature, and in turn, you can actually measure this. So this is beautiful because you're able to, so even though we can't see atoms and molecules in motion in the balloon, for example, you can still measure things that they give rise to these quote unquote macroscopic properties of pressure and temperature. So that was, that was the basic idea of kinetic theory. Statistical mechanics is really an extension of these fundamental ideas in kinetic theory. And they they go back to, you know, the early work of Boltzmann and Maxwell. Um, you mentioned just a moment ago macroscopic view of entropy, and you had a great example of shaking a uh, Christmas present, a wrapped Christmas present box to distinguish between macroscopic and microscopic view of entropy. Okay, yeah, so I, I do like that example. So, so what I was thinking about is, so a nice way to think about a macrostate versus a microstate is kind of like you have a Christmas present and you have this box. And on the outside, what you see is you see the nice gift wrapping and all that. And you can think of that as a macrostate. So what you see. So you can't actually see inside the box because you haven't opened it up yet. But you're curious about what's inside the box. And so what you do is you go ahead and you start shaking up the box. You can hear that there's something in there and it's kind of bouncing around and, and it's kind of jiggling around. You continue to do this over and over and you shake it over and over and the contents move around and you can hear things inside there. And in essence, what you're really doing then is you're actually, even though you can't see it, the shaking and jiggling, what you're hearing are these different samplings of microstates inside the box. Hopefully you haven't broken what's inside the box. That would be another microstate. But the idea is that the macrostate is a nice gift wrapping on the outside that you see in the shaking and stuff as you exploring the contents inside or the microstates and you can hear it bouncing around and jiggling. Yeah, I like that example. Um, we're now coming to the third section of the book, Atoms. And how did Democritus and Aristotle's view of matter differ? Well, that's a good question. So big fan of Democritus. Um, he really was a pioneer, I think, in atomic theory, although his motivations were, were different um, than what we, we think about today. But nonetheless, so the biggest difference is that Democritus believed that 
matter was actually made up of atoms, and Aristotle did not. Aristotle's theory of matter was quite a bit different. So he imagined that there were these fundamental elements, if you will. Um, he called them fire, air, water, and earth. And he believed that these elements had certain inherent properties. For example, he said that earth was cold and dry, fire was hot and dry, water was cold and wet, and air was hot and wet. And so in this way, this was kind of his atomic theory or his element theory, whereas Democritus believed that fundamentally matter was made up of these fundamental constituents that were actually atoms, and very much like, um, in a lot of ways, very similar to what we think about today. You know, um, physics, uh, physics, I think, was originally called na uh, natural philosophy, and there's a lot of philosophy that's sort of intertwined with physics, and one of them involves the spiritual and rational views of nature. And what do you consider to be the spiritual and rational views of nature, and what caused the spiritual to be supplanted by the rational? Well, that's a good question. So when I, when I think about this, I think a little bit of the history, and I take myself back to the 17th century where we really had the rise of mathematics and the physical sciences. And in particular, we had the application of mathematics to solving physical problems. And that was a great turning point. So it was really at that point that we started thinking a little more rationally about the way things are governed in the universe and that maybe the universe actually um, does run according to fundamental laws of nature. And back then, this was called the mechanical philosophy. So that was kind of the first um, you know, the beginning of this more rational view. Around that same time, we also had another, I like to think of it, a more spiritual view of the universe that we called alchemy. You know, and alchemy was a more metaphysical way of looking at nature. nature. And I think we're all familiar with, you know, the alchemist wanting to um, change lead into gold. But actually, alchemy was actually much more than that. The alchemists, they really were concerned about kind of the spiritual connection everything had to the greater universe, you know, and how this affected you know, one's connection to the universe and how this affected one's health and healing and, and things like this. And so I think we really had these two competing philosophies that started some time ago. Um, I think it's actually very interesting. You know, ultimately, me personally, I do believe that nature is governed by fundamental laws and that they actually do manifest themselves mathematically. I think the real challenge is trying to decipher some of the mathematics into the physical reality. You know, back in 1999, um, Time magazine made what I consider to be a major mistake. They had a man of the century and they had Einstein as the man of the century, which was absolutely right in my opinion, but they should have had a man of the millennium. And as far as I'm concerned, the man of the millennium was unquestionably Isaac Newton. And how important a role did Newton play in transforming the world from the spiritual view of nature to the rational one? Well, Newton was a, a major player. I mean, I think that's an understatement to, you know, but he, he really was. I mean, he played a huge role in establishing the rational view of nature. I mean, his establishment of, you know, when he wrote Principia, and then, among other things, he established his laws of motion. I mean, that was game-changing. So, you know, he, he did great things for this rational view of nature. You know, and he was also a, a strong proponent that we could actually write down you know, using mathematics, that this was actually really the, the language um, to communicate with nature in. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. He, he was, you know, he was quite the guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, how would you say it? He, he definitely was quite the guy. The guy of the millennium, yes, easily.
Yeah, I think so. No question. Um, um, but unfortunately, you know, I think we would be 100 years further along in our development um, had the idea behind the atomic theory been coincident with Newton's era, because Newton spent an awful lot of time on alchemy. And why do you think he did that? And why were his efforts ultimately unsuccessful? Uh, that's a, I mean, that's a great question. You know, people have talked about this. I mean, I found it really interesting to to learn about, you know, he didn't just dabble in alchemy. He, he was a full-on alchemist, you know, and he spent a lot of time on this. And I, and so why, why did he do this? I mean, he was a very rational guy for the most, well, for the most part when it came to his physics. So what was he looking for in terms of reaching out to alchemy? And I, I quite honestly, Newton was, he was religious, you know, and I think that he wanted to also, you know, make the most of what a spiritual philosophy or theory, if you will, had to offer in terms of our understanding of the universe. You know, I think he saw it as really complementing the more rational mechanical philosophy view that he was definitely a major proponent of. You know, I think that's a really good explanation. But now we're coming to, you know, now we're coming to the development of chemistry. And how did Proust's law of definite proportions and Lavoisier's law of conservation of matter lead to Dalton's exposition of the atomic theory? And if you can do this in 25 words, you're really good. Yeah. So let me <laughs> let me give you a quick summary of what Proust's law is. So Proust's law says that elements come together in a very specific way to form molecules or compounds, and that's a big deal. In other words, it's not a haphazard process where you're kind of mixing and matching. Specific example would be that we know, we know that water is H2O. So specifically, according to Proust's law, that means that you have two hydrogens and one oxygen to make a water molecule. There's no other way you can do this. That's what it would say. Now, couple that with Lavoisier's conservation law, which guarantees that in a chemical reaction, you can't create atoms or destroy atoms. You know, nothing disappears. And this is really a type of conservation of matter law. So you take this and you you come down to what were fundamental tenets of Newton's, and they are that a chemical element is the same regardless of the molecule that it makes up. So in other words, let's go back to the example of water. You have H2O, you have oxygen in there. Oxygen is in a lot of different molecules. For example, hydrogen peroxide is H2O2. What Dalton was saying in this first tenet is that even though oxygen is making up these two different molecules, oxygen itself has not changed. Oxygen atoms don't change depending on the molecules that they're making up. That's a very important thing. Another thing is that he said, so that kind of leads to his next tenet, which is a little bit of a restatement that atoms are unchangeable. And finally, we have atoms. I think this is common sense, but no one had said it at the time, that atoms combine to make bigger things that we call today molecules. And another important one, which is really a, a chemical restatement of what um, Lobby Swear said, is that in chemical reactions, atoms can only rearrange themselves. And this goes back to the idea that, you know, atoms can't disappear and they can't, you know, spontaneously be created. Um, you know, when you talk about atoms, one of the things that is clear is that after Dalton, well, I think there was a period of about, you know, 10 or 20 years where Dalton's theories were accepted by some, not by others. But after a while, basically, everybody believed it, even though... Um, because it worked. But when and how was the physical existence of atoms actually established? Yeah, I mean, that's a great story. You know, let me kind of give you the quick rundown. So it goes back to 1905 and it goes back to Einstein. And 1905 was a big year for Einstein in a lot of ways. And I, I won't go into detail. You can read more about it in the, in the book. But what Einstein did, 
is he created a theory of microscopic motion of atoms in a liquid. Okay, so specifically, he was thinking to himself, well, imagine that I have a bigger particle, say it's something like on the size of a dust particle, okay, and that this is dissolved, if you will, in a liquid, which is actually made up of smaller atomic particles. So this is kind of the thought experiment that Einstein was doing. It was already known that if you had this type of a, a system, that this bigger particle, which actually today we call a Brownian particle, that this bigger particle would actually bounce around and it would, you know, and you could actually observe this motion with a simple microscope at that time. And so people were like thinking about this, Einstein was thinking about this, and the question was, well, what is making this bigger particle, this Brownian particle bounce around? Einstein said, you know, I know what it is. It's got to be that this liquid is made up of, number one, atoms, and that these atoms are actually colliding with this bigger particle. They're, they're undergoing these random collisions, if you will, and as they collide with it, they move it this way and that way, and they move it all around. And so what he did is he wrote down a theory to capture all this atomic motion. And the beauty of the theory, and it goes back to kind of the heart and soul of kinetic theory and statistical mechanics, was that at the end of the theory, he was able to come away with a quantity that was easily observable experimentally. And so in 1909, um, a very very good experimental physicist, um, Perrin, he was able to observe that quantity that Einstein predicted, and he was able to observe it within the error that Einstein predicted. So in other words, the underpinnings of Einstein's theory was this idea of atomic motions. He came away with this major quantity from that theory, and then it was observed experimentally. And at that point, it became virtually impossible for any rational person to you know, refute the existence of atoms. Yeah, I seem to remember sometime in the 1980s, they had these, uh, they started developing these non-optical microscopes. I'm not sure whether or not that's the appropriate term, but I remember that they had, um, that they actually had pictures of atoms. And I can remember that IBM managed to arrange the atoms so that they spelled out IBM. Oh, yeah, I, don't know I remember what. that too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. I think it was Bed Norris and Muller, but I'm not exactly sure. Yes, that was, uh, that was something. Actually, yeah, <laughs> you know, literally moving at the atomic level, right? Yeah, it was incredible. Um, you know, as a mathematician, uh, one of the things that I've always liked, all mathematicians love numbers. Um, and one of the things that uh, underlies chemistry is the idea of Avogadro's number. And what is it and why is it so important? Right. So I think uh, you have Avogadro's number and then you have the concept of moles and the probably very misunderstood um, to the first year chemistry student. So let me just kind of give you a play-by-play. -play. The idea is that when we talk about a chemical substance, whether it be you know salt or water or something else, we talk about how much we have of it, the amount, and we talk in terms of grams. But another unit that we use is, is called moles. And moles is actually a very simple concept, believe it or not. It's simply the amount in grams divided by the molecular weight of the substance, and that's it. So the connection here is that once you have the moles of something, you can multiply it by... Avogadro's number, and you can calculate then the actual number of atoms and molecules that you have. So it's actually a very amazing number because it's it's really this conversion factor from moles or grams, if you will, to the actual number of molecules and atoms in your substance. So a specific example would be this: consider a tablespoon of water. That would be Avogadro about Avogadro's number of water molecules. So 6.022 times 10 is 23 molecules of water in a tablespoon. 
Wow, a lot of uh, that is that is a lot of uh, molecules. And now we're starting to get into the idea of the last section of your book, which is quantum mechanics. And what are spectral lines, and how are they used to identify elements? And a little bit of the history is sort of interesting, I think. Sure. So the idea of spectral lines goes back to the well. Once we started understanding um, atom in terms of quantum mechanics, and it really comes from Bohr's um, atomic model. So what he said is that you can think of an atom and you can think of the electrons floating or flying around um, an atom, if you will. And then you have the very outer electrons, and we call these valence electrons, and they're actually very important for a variety of reasons. One of the things that they do, which is really amazing, is that these outer electrons, these valence electrons, they can actually absorb light and they can emit light. And the way they do this, according to quantum theory, is actually quite simple and very elegant. So when, in, when you have an electron, say, in a certain orbital or certain energy state, it can actually fall down into a lower energy state. And when it does this, it actually gives off a photon. And likewise, it can absorb a photon by being in that lower energy state, absorb a photon, and then jumps onto a higher energy state. So this is really kind of the fundamental idea behind the quantum atom, that you have these kind of emission and absorption processes. And so when you have the emission process, for a given atom, you're giving off light, and you can actually measure that. And these, and what you measure are different spectral lines, different wavelengths, if you will, that the atom is emitting at. And what's really amazing about this is that this is a unique thing for every atom. And so in this way, spectral lines really play the role of atomic fingerprints. You know, um, and it's so interesting how this uh involves something that actually happened, I think it was in the last few months. Um, there was this uh, there was this collaboration between the gravitational wave observers and the people who observe the uh, the universe in you know more normal ways of observing it, like electromagnetic energy. And they discovered that the heavier elements, such as gold, platinum, and neodymium, were created in these uh, in these collisions of neutron stars. And I'm guessing that they did it by looking at the spectral line. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's it's exactly yes. You're exactly right. I mean, this is why we know, what, you know, the different elements that are comprising the sun. I mean, we understand that when you get these emission things, we know that you have, you know, these different atoms and we can see these things and we can uniquely, you know, figure out what they are. It's, it's actually quite amazing. Um, we're, ha we're doing this interview in the middle of October, but Thanksgiving is on the horizon. <laughs> and you had a very good example of a turkey and a baked potato in an oven that you might like to talk about. Sure. There's a lot going on here, so let me try to break it down. But I, I love that segue into this. The fundamental idea was I was trying to get the reader to appreciate this concept of thermal radiation. And so, the, so how are we familiar with this in our day-to-day -day life? So thermal radiation, you can imagine when you, if you have an electric stove and you turn on the burner, it heats up. We know that it eventually starts glowing red. And the reason it's glowing red, you also see this in your toaster, obviously, um, with that heating element as well. So if you don't have an electric stove, but it starts going red because you're, the temperature is, is leading to um, light being emitted, thermal radiation being emitted. And so the idea behind the, the turkey and the potato was, is I wanted people to imagine, you know, these, these other objects that they're a little more maybe intimately familiar with. You can, you can imagine taking the turkey and the potato and you put it in your oven and you heat it up to, say, 400 degrees Fahrenheit. At some point, you hit that temperature after the oven is preheated, 
and now you're at what we call thermal equilibrium. And believe it or not, your turkey and your potato will also be emitting radiation. Now, you're not going to be able to see it. They don't start going red um, because what they're doing is they're actually emitting in the infrared region, and that's not something that we can see. But they are emitting this thermal radiation. And as they do this, it's, it's very interesting because you're going to have this equilibrium set up and they're going to start exchanging this radiation. So the, the radiation given off by the turkey will be absorbed by the potato and vice versa. And so it's actually a very nice way to introduce this idea of thermal radiation and thermal equilibrium. And it, that was kind of my segue into I wanted people to understand that we could also that these objects aren't fundamental objects. So you could imagine switching out either the turkey or the potato or both with something else. And you would still establish the same type of thermal equilibrium, a very similar type of thermal equilibrium. You would also still see this kind of emission absorption process of thermal radiation. It's intimately tied to the idea of black body radiation and, and Planck's radiation distribution law. In other words, it's tied to this idea of when you heat something up, the, the distribution of radiation that it does give off. Because even though we see one color, perhaps, there's actually a distribution of different wavelengths, different colors that are given off. Uh, I like that because I'm a teacher, uh, well, I teach math, and uh, one of the things that you've just got to do is you can't teach math as just equations and processes. What you have to do is you have to relate it to the real world. And so anytime I see somebody relate, you know, taking abs what are, for most people, abstruse theories and putting it in terms of turkey and baked potato, I know they're doing a good thing, at least from an educational standpoint. Well, that's yeah. my philosophy of education anyway. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, getting back to your book, what was the mistake that Boltzmann, Planck, and Einstein all made when considering how entropy increases? Yeah, so this is this is a great story. So it goes back to the idea that we talked about earlier, the second law, that you have that there is no process in nature, regardless of what, what the process is. It always leads to an increase in the entropy of the universe, or at the very least, it doesn't. Res it stays the entropy of the universe stays the same. But in practice, we find that that's rarely true. And so, this got people thinking about a variety of different things. And oftentimes, when we think about um, this, we think about like simple, simple systems. Once again, you can imagine um, your cup of coffee, and as it cools off, it's actually going from higher temperature to lower temperature. And it's actually going from what we like to call um, a non-equilibrium state to an equilibrium state. That's one of the reasons why, in addition to its increasing the entropy of the universe, it's another reason why it's trying to get to this equilibrium state. And so people like Boltzmann and Planck and Einstein, they thought a lot about how is it exactly that any system, whether it's a cup of coffee or a collection of you know, gas atoms in a box, how do they actually evolve? from a non-equilibrium state to an equilibrium state. And as they do this evolution, how is it that the entropy you know, actually does increase? So, because for an isolated system, the entropy, we know for sure, would increase on its way to equilibrium. That's just kind of a fundamental thing that we understand. But what they thought originally is that along every step of the way in time, so you have your system at non-equilibrium, it evolves over time into equilibrium, and then you can imagine it at these different points in time, these different steps, if you will, in time. They imagined that it had to increase in entropy at every single step until it finally reached that equilibrium state where the entropy now would be at a maximum. And this was something that they all thought, but what we now understand and what they eventually understood is that entropy actually can fluctuate along the way. So actually, when you go from non-equilibrium and you go to an equilibrium, 
um, you know, whether it's your coffee starting hot and then cooling to the equilibrium state of the, you know, room temperature, it doesn't have to increase its entropy at every single step of the way. It just, it will just merely increase its entropy at the very end where it will be a maximum and it'll be at its equilibrium state. Um, you know, when you think of Max Planck, you think of obvi obviously one of the great innovators in, uh, uh, in the history of science. And he developed the idea of energy quanta. And what are energy quanta and what problems do they solve? Well, that's a good question. So, so the idea behind energy quanta, so let's take a step back. So before energy quanta, the concept of energy um, was a little bit different. So Planck said that energy actually comes in discrete units. And when you have something, it's not this continuous spectrum. So you know, no one was really thinking in this way. You know, we talked earlier of the atom and how you can absorb and emit photons in discrete units or energy units, so to speak. Well, no one was thinking of this way. We actually had a much simpler notion. And, and the only real limitation as far as how energy was absorbed or emitted was really simply how much energy could your system hold? Or in other words, what is the heat capacity, if you will, or energy capacity of your system? So think of it like this. Let me give you a specific example. <clears throat> you can imagine having a big box and inside this box, you can place a variety of balls of different sizes. And you can think of these balls, you know, you have these different sizes and you can fill the box with different sizes. Without the energy quantum concept, if you will, I could place any ball of any size in this box until it was full. But when you have Max Planck's idea that you the energy is actually quantized and you, you bring the energy con this energy quantum concept into play, I'm limited by a specific ball size. So in other words, let's say now that I, with the quantum model, I can only take a tennis ball and place it into this box and that this box can only be filled in this way with tennis balls. I can't place like a basketball or a golf ball and, and all these different size balls. That's more of a classical vision of, of energy and, and filling the box, if you will. Whereas Planck's you know, idea was really that there's a certain way that you have to fill the energy of a system. There's a certain way that it can absorb the energy and emit the energy. Um, how was light thought of before the idea of light quanta took hold? Well, in general, light was thought of as being a wave. And so when Einstein said that actually we have light acting as a particle or we actually have it as light quanta, um, that was a really big deal because, like I said, things were thought of in terms of light being a wave, and that meant that you know, decades of having this wave picture that had been quite successful. You know, they had you had Maxwell's equations, which had unified electricity and magnetism and with the under, underpinnings of this idea that light was a wave. And they were very successful in explaining a lot of physical phenomena. So Einstein really shook some things up when he said, well, you know, light actually is a particle, at least under certain circumstances. Well, doesn't that go back to the uh, uh, Young's two-slit experiment where uh, you see that light can behave either as a particle or a wave? And wasn't that actually, you know, Thomas Young was in the first portion of the 19th century, and they wouldn't be calling it Young's two-slit experiment um, had he, you know, had he just set up the equipment and not made any deductions from it. Well, that's right. So, I mean, that's interesting. That kind of comes, are you asking about the double-slit experiment or you're just... Yeah, yeah. Well, so that's very much. Okay, so that's very interesting. I mean, we kind of have, yeah, so when Young did the double slit experiment, um, that really was kind of the, 
the final say all that say yes the light is actually a wave and the reason this was is because as you know the experiment you had these two slits and you pass light through it and you saw an interference pattern and this interference pattern was something that we know that particles don't do of course that waves are things that interfere and we understood this this concept of wave interference and wave diffraction and so it was young's double slit experiment at that time that really was a major push for saying that yes light is actually a wave it's not a particle um, isn't it pot? Okay, this is uh, this is plumbing the depths of uh, my physics, and I said I was an indifferent physics student. But isn't it possible to modify the double slit experiment so that you can actually get some sort of indication that light is behaving as a particle? Yeah. So what happened? So then that kind of brings us to the, I guess, the classical quantum double slit experiment. That this was something I, I like the way Feynman kind of talks about it. And so let me kind of yeah, run you through a version that I kind of modified from that. So the idea is that you can imagine, for example any kind of quantum particle. And I like to, you can imagine light. Um, I often like to think of electrons, but the idea is that you're taking this quantum particle and you're firing it. You know, you have like, say you have, say you have a, like an electron gun and you have this electron gun, it's mounted on a turret, a turret and this turret's oscillating back and forth and you're shooting these electrons out at the two holes. You're not aiming, but you're merely shooting them in a random direction, just kind of in a forward direction towards the holes. So, the idea here is that the holes themselves, they're the same size, and they're just big enough to let the electron through, in this case. And then as the electron heads towards the holes, some of them obviously will pass through and some of them won't. But at the very end, we can, you know, we can measure all this. So you have the two holes, you have the wall with the two holes in it, and then you can imagine having another wall set up where you have these detectors. And the detectors actually will measure the electrons as they hit the back wall. So the idea then is that this back wall, the final position of each electron, is recorded by the detector, and it sends all this information then to a, a computer for final processing. And so what we're trying to get to is we're trying to kind of collect the overall statistics. I want to know, in short, how many electrons or photons or whatever the quantum particle is that I'm shooting out. As they go through these holes, I want to know how many of them are hitting the back wall at certain positions. In other words, I want to know what the distribution is at that back wall. And so the computer gives me that, and I look at it, and I think about it. And so some very interesting things arise. So remember, we started out by saying that we were firing these, these quantum particles, right? Because we understand that, according to Einstein, he said that light was a photon. And then later we've learned or, you know, that light was a particle that we call a photon, that in general we have quantum particles, electron acts like a particle and all this. But what we find is that even though we do believe that they're particles. The weird thing is that as, as we were shooting these things through the holes, there was also an interference pattern. And so this is really confusing because if they're actually particles, the big question is, well, why is it that we're getting interference? Because like we talked about earlier, it's waves that interfere. So that's confusing. Another thing that's confusing is that the detector itself actually did detect each individual particle. In other words, even though we get an interference pattern in accordance with something acting like a wave, the detector also detects, when we look at the distribution, we can see the individual, so to speak, we can see those individual points that a single electron, a localized entity, actually hit the wall. So we actually have this weird duality where you get the interference pattern of a wave, but at the same time, you also det detect this very localized you know, thing, entity, if you will, which is acting like a particle. 
Yeah, you know, I uh, I recall, you know, I recall a quote due to Heisenberg or something that, you know, when you get to the, you know, when you get to the level of the atom, you have to sort of abandon your ordinary view of the world, real world, because atoms just don't behave like ordinary things in the real world. Well, that's right. So, I mean, that kind of brings us to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and, and some of the ramifications thereof. I mean... Heisenberg's uncertainty principle it really defines a rigorous restriction um, on things that we can measure. So in, in other words, you can imagine, and we like to imagine, for example, an electron that orbits around in a very specific orbit around an atom. But the reality is, is that the position of the electron at, every, at any given point in time isn't well defined. And in fact, it's, it's even worse than that because according to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, it says that there's certain quantities, like an electron's position and its momentum along a given direction, aren't something that we can actually know. We can't know both those, quanti those quantities at the same time. You know, I think a lot of people misunderstand and, and they think that that means that we're unable to measure it or it's some kind of limitation in our abilities to measure things or our equipment. But it's not. Fundamentally, according to, you know, the way we view things under quantum mechanics, it's that simply this orbit isn't well-defined the particle's path, the electron's path is not well-defined. There's just certain quantities that even if we know the one specifically, we can't actually know anything about the other one. Yeah, you know, you mentioned probability, which is a subject that fascinates me, fascinates lots of mathematicians. And I guess it also fascinated Einstein. But nonetheless, Einstein had difficulty coming to grips with the inherently probabilistic nature of quantum mechanics. And why do you think that was? Well, I mean, I think <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, that's something that people talk a lot about. <clears throat> I mean, I think he was just unable to accept that nature would set itself up in this way. You know, and it's, it's very interesting because Einstein had no trouble with, you know, using mathematical and physical techniques such as statistical mechanics. But there, there was a little bit different because statistical mechanics is really a tool to kind of bring the mathematical problem, you know, something that's more tractable when you're dealing with, for example, like a system of Avogadro number, 10 to the 23rd number of atoms. So the quantum mechanic probability is much different. It's saying that nature is inherently uncertain, that you can't actually, once again, going back to an electron moving around a certain orbit, you can't actually really know where that electron is. That, that there's certain quantities that even if you do know, for example, its position, there's going to be certain ones that you don't know and, and all these things. And that overall, it's the quantum probability that governs the way we understand things at the microscopic level. And I think Einstein, he just, he couldn't accept that. It was, you know, he was one of those guys going back to your original, you know, your original question, you know, is there, are there fundamental laws? Is there a universal law of everything that, is out there. And Einstein believed that there was. And so he couldn't then in turn believe that there remained this type of, you know, inherent uncertainty in nature. Yeah, well, there, uh, it, the study of physics and chemistry, I think, is something that every human being really ought to spend a bunch of time on. And I really enjoyed your book, and I can't recommend it too highly. It's a great introduction. And Scott, um, uh, I always end uh, 
I always end interviews with a couple of questions. First, I hope that there will be listeners who uh, are sufficiently fascinated that not only do they want to buy your book, but they want to get in touch with you. And how would they do that if they if they want to get in touch with you? Yeah, they could actually email me. Um, my my email address is scott at scottbenbenick.com. Um, uh, we'll spell it for them. B-E-M is in Mary, B-E-N is in Nancy, E-K. Yes. Um, and a final question is, do you have any other projects on the horizon? I heard about a Scientific American article, and I'm about a year behind on my Scientific Americans, but I'm looking forward to getting to that one. Um, but do you have any other projects on the horizon? Well, so right now what I'm doing is I, I haven't started another book, but I do think about it. Um, and I'm also trying to get, uh, you know, my current book, The Cosmic Machine, I'm trying to encourage its use um, in classrooms and that because I think it's a nice complement to the standard texts, you know, that we use um, because it really shapes the science in an interesting way. So I'm, I'm working on doing that and maybe actually having more of a, you know, an education edition, if you will. Or, you know, yeah, go ahead. Um- uh, yeah, as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, you know, when you say as a complement to the standard text, it's the type of book that I would use for a uh, in math. We have what are called math for poets. Um, uh, and I'm not sure whether or not there is a similar thing in. Uh, but there are there are general science introduction courses. And I think that this is a great book for general science introduction course. Well, yeah, so that, that would be where that. I, that would be where I'd put it. Yeah, absolutely. And I've actually had, a, you know, several educators reach out and ask about that. And it's really interesting because I wasn't thinking about this audience at the time. I was strictly thinking of, you know, the, the standard popular science audience. But I'm, so I'm really excited about that possibility. But other than that, I've, I've been writing several articles. I wrote an article on getting your daughters interested in science and some of the, the challenges, as we talked about earlier, you know, things that women in science over all these years have faced a lot of challenges and setbacks. And, you know, how do we deal with that these days? And, you know, what if you're like me and you have two daughters? You know, so actually, yeah. I wrote an article uh, for the Huffington Post, which just came out um, about a month ago. So I'm writing a lot of, uh, you know, these types of articles as far as uh, science history and science education type things. Yeah, I do things like that in mathematics. So I think it's a, you know, I think it's a wonderful thing. And I hope we're able to interest people who would not ordinarily be interested in this, which is unfortunately about 95% of humanity. Well, (laughs) I think we're making, we're making strides, right? We're making strides. Exactly. It's a, it's a much better environment for mathematics and science than it was say a hundred or 200 years ago. Scott, it's been a pleasure talking to you and I hope that at some stage we'll be able to do it again. So write another book. Yeah, I would love to. Thanks, Jim. I really enjoyed this. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.